Welcome to the Grow Through International Expansion podcast. I'm Oliver Dowson. Let me be your guide as to how businesses, all kinds of businesses, small and large, can grow, solve their business problems, increase their profits, and grow their value. In these podcasts, we talk to all sorts of interesting people that bring their skills, experience, and insights to all aspects of international expansion. I hope you like these podcasts. If you do, subscribe and keep listening every week. We love comments too. And do share and tell others and check out our resources on our growinternational.org website. Since we started this series of podcasts a couple of years ago now, quite a number of people have asked me to cover franchising as an approach to growth through international expansion. Becoming a franchisee has certainly proved popular for many who've got a reasonable sum of money to invest, want to run a business that they can get started quickly, but who either don't have a ready business concept of their own or simply want the increased confidence that operating an established model can bring. However, I admit that franchising is not a topic that I've had personal experience of. Indeed, until a few days ago, my assumption was that it was limited to fast food restaurants, hotels, quick printing and office services shops. But then I read an article by David Bond and Gordon Drakes of Field Fisher about franchising British schools abroad. Definitely not something I'd ever considered before. David and Gordon are lawyers and they've both specialised in franchising for many years. Their article opened my eyes to the opportunities not only for franchisees, those who buy and operate the franchise, but for businesses to become franchisors and to use that as a route to international expansion. I'm delighted that they accepted my invitation to join me through this Growth Through International Expansion podcast. So, if you've created a business that could operate in another country, perhaps you could consider franchising. It doesn't have to be one of the usual suspects. You just need a quality product or a service, a good brand, and an established methodology that others can replicate so that they can deliver the same product or service in another country. You also need good legal protection, of course, and you'll hear a lot about that. And I think learn a lot about franchising in general from my conversation here with David Bond and Gordon Drakes of Field Fisher. David and Gordon, welcome to the Grow Through International podcast. Thank, thank you, Oliver, for, for inviting us on. Um, yeah, so, so I think one of the things we wanted to talk about today was um, just explaining a little bit about what we understand or what we explain to our clients is is franchising because lots of different clients or uh, businesses have a different understanding of what of what franchising might mean some some positive some some negative <laughs> uh, which is why we phrased it as, as the f word um, I think it's probably just to start off I mean assuming that some of the listeners aren't that acquainted to to what franchising is I mean there's there's no kind of universal definition um, of franchising some countries do regulate franchising so there is definition in in their laws and there are international national and national trade bodies that have a have kind of accepted definitions of what franchising is but very broadly speaking from a legal point of view it is effectively comprises of a, a license of a brand um, there's something right. called a business format um, which is also part of the license that, that's given from a franchisor to a franchisee it's a format that can be easily duplicated so it could well be that the franchisee has no prior experience in that particular sector or type of business but but the, but the system can be so easily replicated that that it's quite 
quite easy for them to step into that space. And then also quite a strong element of the franchising relationship is this idea of initial and ongoing uh, support and assistance from the franchisor in, in the way that that system is operated. Um, those are the kind of things that really kind of distinguish what a franchise relationship is as opposed to say a more typical type of product distribution or service distribution or agency type arrangement where you're using a third party, but maybe, maybe that third party has many other interests or there's, there's a less involved in continual engagement between the licensor and the licensee. So that's, that's broadly speaking what we that's kind of what we're talking about. But I think as we get into it, you, you will we'll see that there are many different ways in which uh, franchising can be used. It's a very kind of malleable business model um, and certainly with, with some of the clients we work with in all kinds of sectors from education food and beverage retail etc um, franchising is, is a model that can really be adapted depending on the market or the partner um, in, in many different ways great well, I can I, I think that most people relate to it as being in the food and beverage side burger restaurants and fried chicken and the like um, but Franchising extends to a lot of different sorts of businesses, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I, if I can just um, comment on the diversity, Gordon mentioned the diversity of franchising and the adaptability, and that is there's no better way of demonstrating that by looking at the sectors in which franchising operates. It is, as you say, food and beverage. Everyone knows McDonald's, KFC, uh, and that's partly why we, we we try not to use the F word in all circumstances because it has this misconception that it only applies to food and beverage, but that's far from the truth. Food and beverage is, a, is the, the most known example, but retail in the UK, you walk down the high street and 90% of the, the main retailers are franchising, not in the UK, but overseas. So international right. franchising, very much retail. Hotels, uh, some of the biggest uh, hotel brands now, be surprised to hear that they don't own any hotels. They don't actually own any properties other than their head office. Every other hotel is operated through a franchise model. And, and that's one model that's particularly interesting because it shows the adaptability of franchising where you've got a the brand and the concept as Gordon mentioned but you're licensing that often to property developer or an investment fund has no interest and no knowledge of, of, of hotels whatsoever you grant them a franchise they then appoint either the brand owner or a third party to come in and manage it and operate the hotel on behalf of the property developer and you've got this virtuous circle where the brand licenses the property developer license a manager who operates who pays a fee uh, back to the, the hotel owner so there's this circle of of, uh, of fees circulating and everyone comes out with a share of the uh, of the profit and a very successful model um, and we'll come on to some of the advantages but then yeah um, education another classic example where UK schools in particular have seen the benefit of these third party relationships to fundamentally generate income revenue that can help support the, the UK school to fulfil its objectives of education mm. for UK uh, children which allows for school fees to be kept within range of, of more people, allows bursaries, allows uh, more access to education, which is fulfilling their object. So massive range. And in the past, we've looked at uh, setting up franchises in the NHS. That was one uh, area we looked at. Uh, franchising hospitals was, was was a possibility. All sorts um, of areas can, can benefit from the structure. What are the fundamentals for a franchise or something you can franchise? You basically need a, 
a very strong brand and a very strong business model. Is mm-hmm. that the, really the only fundamental? I would say a couple of things then, Gordon, um, please you, you jump in. But I would just say there's a couple of things. One thing in particular I would add to that, a strong brand, a strong concept that can be adapted to the local market and can be trained. You can, be, you can teach others to do it. But actually one of the things that uh, certainly in my experience is a fundamental is a, an ability to shift from operating your own business to supporting others to build theirs, which is a massive mindset change because a lot of businesses focus on themselves, on how they're going to build the corporate estate, how they're going to uh, develop the business. And then what they don't do is they don't have to train, nurture, support, be a shoulder to cry on for a franchisee. It's a very different model. You were talking about the hotel group that basically has no hotels of their own. Presumably in the beginning, they had to have one at least or Mm. some of their own just in order to be able to develop the concepts and the brand to begin with. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's that's right. And and certainly when you look around the world, um, in terms of w- for countries that regulate franchising, it's often a requirement that the franchise system before they can actually start to franchise, they have to have demonstrated that they can um, that they've operated that that business themselves directly. Um, I think in China they it's called it the two plus one rule. So at least kind of two units for for one year. And in other markets, there are similar types of requirements as well. So before you can actually franchise, you have to demonstrate that you can operate the business yourself so to answer your question yes kind of historically though that all those businesses would have would have initially started as being owner operators themselves but over time they've they've divested themselves of, of their assets and have become much more of a um, kind of a service-led uh, type business where they're providing they're providing ip and they're providing uh, services um to their right. to now their network of, of franchisees but they're, they're very asset light and that's that's not just hotels but hotels is, is, a, is a great example of, of how that um, of how franchising has evolved in that sector but but even within retail now um, because you are seeing some retailers out there um, there's a there's a very well-known retailer in the UK in the kind of uh, children children's wear and um, uh, you know products for 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 juniors um, who they've because of the pressures in the UK high street They've they've effectively no longer have much of a store presence, if any. So they used, they started out their business as a predominantly UK focused business, lots of stores with some international franchisees. Over time, that's completely shifted. So we're now they have, uh, I think now zero UK branded stores themselves, but hundreds of franchisees around the world, and they are now a business like the hotel like the hoteliers, which is purely about providing IP, system innovation, product supply. Um, and that's that's kind of what they do is they are effectively now a pure franchise business. So there are lots of in-betweens. There are still a number of businesses which um, have a strong corporate operated business, maybe in their home market and franchise overseas. Some might have in their own market, particularly some of the coffee chains, they operate some of their own brands, but also franchise, they operate some of their own units and franchise within the same market. So there's lots of brands fall somewhere in that spectrum. Um, but certainly, yeah, it's interesting to see see kind of an evolution in the market where you get at, the, at this one mm. end you've get you've got some brands that that literally have very little assets anymore and it's all about the provision of ip and services most of the sorts of businesses you talked about at least the ones that i think about in relation to those are all very big operations 
how big do you have to be before you can franchise your business model? Uh, actually, as, as we were, uh, yeah, as we were, as we were talking, I was um, going to make the point that there is a bit of a distinction between certainly from the UK angle, from a, a UK domestic franchise and an international franchise, and they are different. The in the UK, the the short answer just to your question is you can be very small. Um, as Gordon said, you need to have ideally if you're uh, following the BFAs, the British Franchise Association's Code of Ethics, you will have been operating your business for uh, a period of time and then you'll have a pilot franchise. So the first thing you do is you, you've got a proven system uh, you can show that it works. But what you can't then show is you can't show that it's capable of being franchised. So as I said earlier, can it be copied? Can it be replicated? And the way you demonstrate that is you have six, 12 month pilot where you set up the franchise, you support the franchisee. And as a franchisor, you learn about what you need to do as a franchisor. How do you support your franchisees? What are the problem areas? What do you find easy that they find difficult? And at the end of that year, you've got your accounts, you've got your learning, you've got your training manual, you've got your operations manual, all the things you've developed. And at the end of the year, you actually think, okay, yeah, we did a good job there. And then if it's successful, you can roll it to other franchisees. But to answer your question, you really only have to have had uh, a business been operating itself for a short period of time and then a pilot. So you can really just have one unit is possible to then franchise the first time, so long as you can demonstrate that it's successful and can be replicated. And and it's a replicable model that others can build on, others can pick up. Yeah, exactly. In the UK, it tends to be more about how easy can it be adapted? Uh, Is it something that you can roll out in volume to get large numbers? In the international market, the ease with which it can be replicated is less because you're dealing with more sophisticated partners. So in the education sector, for example, you're not dealing with organizations that have never operated a school before. You're dealing with people Mm -hmm. who know how to operate schools. So their level of knowledge is here. Whereas, to give you an example, in the UK, Colquick, the the printing franchise, They would take franchisees that didn't know anything about printing. They didn't have a clue, but they would be trained in order for them to learn everything they needed. So there's a difference between international and UK. And the size is also a difference. The ones that go international, they tend to be bigger because the, the, the costs of going international are that much higher. Sure. I, I know this isn't specifically a legal matter, but you know, if you're a franchise or a would-be franchisee, what are the pros and cons of doing it? And I guess also from a franchisor's point of view as well. I guess there must be some negatives. Yeah, I guess from a... Yeah, I guess well, some of the some of the the a pro uh, an advantage for a franchise or certainly is is obviously you're you're relying on the franchisee's capital to to set up that business. So you know they're 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 funding the payroll, they're taking the risk on the on the rent, um, they're funding the it's their capital that's going to set up that business, and it's also their local expertise that will that will um, develop mm-hmm. that business. So from a that's definitely an advantage from a franchise or and from a from a market entry point of view as well. If we look at talking about international franchises. There are some um, regions or markets where you have to effectively have some kind of franchise relationship because there will be some restriction on foreign direct investment. Um, so the Middle right. East, for example, has historically is, is been very difficult for brands to set up a kind of 100%, 100% foreign owned um, presence in that in those markets. So franchising provides a way in. 
um, it also allows for uh, rapid growth. Um, you know, you, you can you can sign up franchisees at a rate much faster than the most franchisors could do corporately if they were to, if, if they were to try and fund it themselves. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the advantages. And from a franchisee perspective, it's I think the advantages are obviously that they they don't have to develop that that business themselves. Um, they don't have to kind of invent the system. Um, they're buying into a proven model, and and the the evidence is out there that actually franchise failure rates are comparatively much lower than um, than the rest of the economy when you're looking at startup businesses. Oh, really? Um, is that the case? So, so, so yeah, so the, the BFA, the British Franchise Association in the UK, they do a, a joint um, a survey every couple of years with NatWest Bank, and um, that's always been that's always been one of the uh, one of the um, outcomes of that study is just the, the very low level of failure rates in in franchise businesses, and that goes back to the point David was was making is that if you if you're doing franchising in the right way, in the ethical way, in terms of you're only you're only getting into it having already proved your model and you're providing the right kind of support, then really you're you're really lowering that the likelihood of franchisees failure because they're being fully trained, they've they're buying into a system that's already proven, can be easily replicated, they're getting the right kind of support and assistance. So all of those risks that come with with a startup, if you're starting out on your own, just just disappear. The disadvantage from a franchisee's point of view obviously is the quid pro quo is they're um, they've got to pay royalties, they've got to pay fees back to the franchisor for that kind of for that for that brand and that assistance. So there's the risk and the reward is slightly different. It's a lower risk, but it's a it's a lower reward from a franchisee point of view. So mm-hmm. they, I think those are those are some of the main ones. I think I think from probably one one of the final one is a disadvantage for a franchisor is I think there's a perception at least rightly or wrongly that there's a loss of control um, versus a corporate expansion. And one of them one of one of the, the kind of the practical examples of, of that I guess would be in terms of the brand's interaction with it with the end consumer um, mm-hmm. that would typically that may well be certainly historically at least that would be going through the franchisee so as a brand you might lose that connection to to the end customer um, by having a franchise model although I would say actually with with te- with technology and uh, e-commerce the way that's been evolving over the last few years with 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 ordering apps and, and e-commerce and so forth actually there's still even within franchise models there's still a lot of direct interaction these days between between the brand and the consumer perhaps more than there was sure David you were going to come in there yeah I was just going to add and and just to to add to to Gordon's last point there in terms of control there is that perception of of, of less control in a franchise model although the contract the franchise agreement does provide you with contractual control as far as you can but but one area where there is a limitation on franchisors which um, sometimes comes as a shock to franchisors but actually rarely is a a major problem is the area of, of, of pricing so a franchisor cannot set the price at which its franchisees sell products or provide services. That's got to be the franchisee's choice. The franchisor can recommend a price, you can't fix it, which is why oh, you ever see any, you see advertisements, uh, promote, mm-hmm. promotions in franchise networks, they'll say at participating stores because the choice thing. But, if you, but presumably if you have multiple franchisees in the same geography, you don't want them competing with each other, so there must be some control. You, you don't. Um, there is no control as such other than if you are a franchise there's, there's hard control and soft control the hard control really is is uh, the recommended price and the fact that if you're a franchisee 
why are you buying into a network if you're not going to listen to the franchisor's advice, which one of the key factors is yeah. pricing. Um, although the franchisor cannot control the price, they can set maximum prices, but that's not really what we're talking about. It's about undercutting and being competitive, which this is all European competition law um, because they want to encourage uh, competition and lowering the prices. But you can, the soft ways in which franchisors can obviously influence is just generally in, in terms of a franchisee that is willing to listen to all the advice given by the franchisor, including price, is a good franchisee. A franchisee who doesn't listen, does his own thing, is likely not to be a successful because the, the franchisor has the experience and is also likely not to endear themselves to the franchisor either. So I when guess it comes not. to renewals, <laughs> when it comes to issues, they may not have such a good time. So there's a lot of soft pressure, but but fundamentally, yeah, um, you don't want different prices, but that happens. But the, the other advantage or disadvantage I was going to mention, one of the, the real fascinating aspects to me is we've worked on quite a few conversions uh, in the UK where you convert from a corporate network of stores to a franchise network. And one of the interesting aspects of that is that, that if you move from having a manager of a high street retailer to franchisee operating that, it's small things, but it's the small things that add up. So for example, the manager, it might be 10 o'clock closing time, five to 10, close sign goes, it's quiet night, I'm going to finish five minutes early, I'm going home. Mm-hmm. The franchisee stays open till 10, somebody comes to the door at 10, of course they let them in because they are invested in the business totally differently from an from a employee uh, perspective. And also that franchisee owner, they get some ideas about how their business could be improved. They're not allowed under the franchise agreement to simply implement innovation, but they're encouraged to provide those ideas to the franchisor to assess. And if they are successful, they, they bring them into the system and pass them to all franchisees. So there's that innovation side, which you know, is, is not something to overlook because you've got these entrepreneurial sure. type um, franchisees who've got lots of ideas and, and are a, a real blessing. And some of them are real passionate about the, the brand and about the, the business. So they are real advocates. Awesome. Gordon. Yeah, well, just, just to add to that point, in terms of an example about the innovation point, which is, which is a very uh, great, it was a great point and uh, very true for franchising, is about the McDonald's drive-through. My understanding is that 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 was an innovation that actually came up from a from a franchisee in in the states. Um, oh, really? That was that that was a that was a franchisee driven innovation that obviously the the franchise all thought well that's that's a that's a great idea let's try it and you know the rest is history. So it just goes to show that with 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 franchising done the right way, a franchise network can become your own kind of R and D uh, development um, as well if you listen to your franchisees um, and you take on board those uh, those those ideas and developments. Mm. Um, they they can actually really uh, in, increase the value of the brand. So it's a really interesting area. Now, you guys are lawyers. There must be a lot of work for you in terms of franchising from the viewpoint both of the franchisor and the franchisee because i guess there's a lot of law around this yeah that, that's that's right i mean it's a very it's a fascinating area for for i think for us personally it's it's it, as i said as we, as we said it's it's so many different types of businesses that we get to work with all at different stages some startups some established some international so there's a, there's a variety in the business um that, that's very interesting and franchising itself it, it although say taking taking the uk as, as an example where there 
there is no franchise specific law so there's no particular law in which um uh you know that that we have to advise on but there's such an intersection of different commercial laws or regulations that affect the franchise relationship that that that's also what makes it so interesting so for example i mean you've got with the rise of gdpr and data and the way that 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 works between um the franchisor and the franchisee with data controllers and processes that's an area that's become uh, much more prevalent in franchise relationships as david mentioned earlier as well the the intersection between competition law and the franchise relationship is absolutely key so understanding about how that impacts on your supply terms and on, on pricing and, and other types of restrictions in those in those contracts mm-hmm. also there are some kind of software areas as well that are developing so uh, there's a this, this concept of, of good faith and fair dealing um, which is kind of coming in through the back door through some through some uh, cases in in uh, in the UK but has actually become quite a, a hot topic in the US in Canada in Australia so other common law countries are all actually kind of regulating this idea of good faith in the in the in the franchise relationship just a little bit more through um, good faith because I think this is um, an interesting area that not many of our listeners will really have thought about yeah so so good faith is is a concept where effectively it's a um, it, it's, it's this idea of whether there is a um, a duty that can be implied into the overall relationship um, that requires the franchisor and the franchisee to treat each other uh, in a way that, that recognises the, the high level of investment and cooperation that's necessary to make the franchising relationship work. So where, for example, on the franchisor side, if you've got a franchisor that's kind of making rather arbitrary or unilateral decisions about how it operates its network and that might have an adverse impact on a franchisee or the, or the whole network or a group of franchisees, it may act as a, if there is this recognised duty of good faith, that could potentially temper the franchisor's ability to uh, to operate with absolute kind of impunity or um, absolute discretion over the network. Um, now, in, in the UK, there is no there is no generally implied duty of that under English law. Um, but as I mentioned, in other, in other common law jurisdictions like in the US, Canada and Australia, that has actually now been legislated into, the, into their franchise legislation. And also many other civil law jurisdictions so particularly in, in mainland Europe Germany France um, uh, Spain and others um, uh, have, have actually they have they have this in their own commercial codes if not in their own franchise specific legislation so the UK is actually becoming a bit of an outlier in this respect we're kind of uh, swimming against the tide as it were um, in, in in terms of it not still not being a recognized issue but I think mm-hmm. that as franchising evolves over the next five to ten years, I think uh, I think we I think we will see more certainly in English law contracts. There could be more. The contract itself is going to deal with this issue more head on. I think to try and try and strike the right kind of balance, which gives a franchisor still a reasonable level of discretion to operate his network, while equally giving the franchisee some comfort that it's not um, it's not going to be um, completely railroaded into into uncommercial or unreasonable decisions. Um, okay. So it's, it's, that's an interesting area that kind of that's crosses over between the contractual side com- transactional side that we do and um and a more kind of dispute litigation side just going to add that it's um yeah at one level it's um not the whole issue of good faith is something that you would hope and expect that a lot of franchisors and franchisees would legislate for anyway because it is fundamentally a relationship between the two and good faith is all about treating each other in a in a, a fair and appropriate way the difficulty with good faith that we have uh, 
and I guess under English law is that we have this very strong principle that whatever's in the contract is in the contract and and if it's not in the contract then it doesn't apply and the courts are very reluctant to imply terms into English law contracts they'll generally only imply mm-hmm. terms where you need to imply a term to make sense of the term that's already in the contract because something's missing it needs something more to make sense and and that's that's where a lot of the, a lot of the unease over good faith is but it's as Gordon says it's it's something that is increasing and um, and I think it's fundamentally um, with, with issues of good faith I think you are looking at the relationship between the parties and you are saying okay well um, let's balance between the need to treat a franchisee fairly but at the same time you have to recognise within a franchise network that a franchisor's decisions will not necessarily benefit all franchisees equally because when dealing as a franchisor you could be representing a hundred franchisees and if your change to the system benefits 99 but is adverse for one it's still the right decision to do for the system and one of the important principles in franchising is uniformity as you said about um having local mcdonald's or fast food restaurants all selling for the same price that's the fundamental issue with any business is uniformity customers need to know what they're getting that's what a brand's all about you you expect you you know what you expect and when you go to the store you get what you expect that's the same thing with uniformity in a franchise so if it's adverse for one that unfortunately doesn't really matter in a franchise you've still got to keep that uniformity and that means that they're going with majority sometimes sure and i guess must get even more complicated when you're a franchise or dealing with multiple countries i was going to ask you about uh, to expand a bit more on the comment you made earlier about regulatory differences and regulatory requirements in some countries for franchising. But if you're a prospective franchisor, and our listeners are mostly interested in international business, and they have a concept that uh, a business that could be franchised, it, to what extent is it a one-size-fits-all, and to what extent do they have to configure it differently for each country? Is legally, legally, I guess, they would have to have completely different contracts for each country, which might work off a standard model, or am I crazy, Gordon? Oh, it's certainly not crazy. Um, so in terms of the contract, most franchisors would take that they would have a standard, standardised uh, standardized franchise agreement, which they would then uh, roll out in each jurisdiction they, they're going to. That that contract would need to be adapted to comply with, with local law, but certainly most, um, it's certainly best practice and most of our clients follow the principle that, for example, if we're acting for a, um, a UK company, almost all of its international agreements would be subject to English law. Um, those contracts would be then reviewed by a local franchise expert in each jurisdiction to make sure they comply with any laws arising from public policy or mandatory laws. But by and large, those contracts will be fairly uniform. The, the difference is when it comes to the regulation is some of the formalities that you have to go through before you can actually um, sign on the dotted line and start um, and start that process of, of um, training and, and, and uh, onboarding the franchisee. So there are a number, there are a number things one of them is in some jurisdictions it's a franchise all needs to register itself with the local franchise registry before it can uh, offer its franchise that's certainly true in in the states for example um, and also in other jurisdictions that have followed that so whether it's vietnam or china malaysia for example so you can't even offer you shouldn't really be offering your your franchise um, before you've registered yourself as a franchise or um, another one is is disclosure um, so some countries 
um, again, through their own specific laws or through their own general laws, um, general commercial laws in some civil civil law countries in Europe, for example, they would require a franchisor to make adequate disclosure to a franchisee about the business before the franchisee enters into that that legal relationship. And that would usually be in through the form of a issuing a disclosure document, which would um, detail things about the French about the brand, the history of the brand, the key issues and the the key kind of terms of the franchise relationship, how many franchisees are in the network, what's the what's the failure rate, that that kind of full disclosure to a franchisee. Uh, and the third one, which kind of le- feeds back into that point about getting the mandatory law, is there may well be issues in man- mandatory local law that impact on on that template agreement. It may well be that you need to change certain terms and it may well be that you need to give certain notice provisions to terminate. Certain termination provisions may need to be paired back. There may be other types of restrictions that impact on the commercial terms. So some some jurisdictions um, <clears throat> will limit the amount of royalty that can be paid out of a country. So South Africa is an example where they have restrictions on the, on the amount of um, a foreign um, money that can be remitted to a foreign entity. So those all those types of issues need to be considered as you as you do it so to try and answer your original point you can take a kind of fairly uniform approach to your international franchising in terms of your agreement but you do need to take local law on a country by country basis even within even with say within the european union there is no harmonized uniform franchising law each country unfortunately still even within the single market like the eu has a slightly different approach to franchising so there is no one size fits all in that respect so the 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 right thing to do is to get that advice because the the consequence of not getting it right is is that you could find yourself in a situation where those agreements might be unenforceable for example or you may not you may you may have you may be expecting a royalty check of eight percent but actually you realize down the line that you you can't get 8% out of the country you can only get 5% and that completely turns the whole model uh, on its head so all those things make make sense in terms of flushing out at the beginning. You, you've definitely proved to me, and I'm sure to anyone listening to this, that this is an area which might be very exciting, but you're definitely going to need expert advice to before going into it, and uh, there's going to be a lot of considerations to be made. We're almost out of time, but... Um, One thing I have to ask you about, I guess, because of the times we're in at the moment is uh, whether there's any likely to be any impact or fallout from the COVID-19 situation. Well, certainly uh, on one level, the answer is definitely yes. But at one level, uh, a franchise is just like any other business. So if you're in food and beverage or if you're in hotels, uh, I think we all know that the the COVID-19 outbreak has had a massive impact on those industries, those business sectors. So franchisees are not, as Gordon mentioned earlier, uh, if you take a franchise, you've got a much better rate of success than if you were to set up your own brand and concept from scratch, but that doesn't make you immune from economic uh, issues uh, in the wider sense. So yeah, franchisees are are suffering just like others, uh, and therefore franchisors need to be very aware of that. And the relationship now is key to make sure that franchisors and franchisees are supported and they help each other. Um, But equally, the current environment, uh, although it's tough for businesses, it's also a great opportunity for businesses. Um, It used to be the case in this the sort of the 90s, certainly in the UK, 
that a recession was boom time for franchising. The reason being that during a recession, in past recessions, this isn't so true now, but in the past recessions, certainly in the 90s, there were a lot of redundancies, redundancy pays, payments of staff who were still very much working age. They had a lump sum. What were they going to do? Or buy a franchise. So franchisors had a, a real uptick in a possible good good quality franchisees. That's that's not so much the case now because unemployment tends not to happen. It's more about reduced hours and, and, and other options. But um, but even now with the uh, the economy as it is, a lot of franchisors are seeing an opportunity. They're either seeing opportunities because now is a good time to do business or they're actually seeing we need to diversify a little bit. We need not to rely on our home market. We need to uh, and this is particularly true in schools, a school that may have been reluctant to expand overseas for a variety of reasons a few years ago, now seeing actually where there's pressure on us in the UK, we need to look for other revenue streams and franchising is a good option. Mm. Absolutely. Gordon? Yeah, just, and just to echo that, it's not just for businesses that haven't franchised before. I think that, that there's an opportunity on the back of this crisis to, to use it. But for businesses that already franchise, I think that COVID-19 you know, is basically accelerating a number of changes within our society and within business that may have taken you know five ten years to to play out are now are now on, on fast forward so for franchising what that means is i think franchise relationships is is, is those relationships are going to have to be recast franchisees going to be becoming much more involved in online retailers as well as just operating physical stores i think yeah. the franchise systems need to be more agile to deal with these types of issues so a franchisor needs the ability to quickly change the system uh, to deal with, with this type of um, uh, crisis in the future i think also supply chain it, it just goes to show that maybe there's um they need to be reviewed and maybe slightly disaggregated to so that so people aren't uh, so these systems aren't so much at risk of one supply chain going down if you're completely reliant on on, on chinese supply for example um the good faith point i think is relevant because i think this has just shown that franchisors and franchisees that collaborate communicate listen to each other to get through the crisis i think if you've got those systems in place um that will that will stand you in good stead as you as you go forward and finally might seem like a slightly um, kind of odd one to mention but about the the climate emergency that was that was that was in the that was that was here before covid and it's going to be here after covid i think that there's as as this is almost an opportunity i think for businesses to think about making sure that their franchise networks and their supply chain chains are are going to be green and sustainable going forward and um, whether you're getting into franchising for the first time or or looking at those relationships after this crisis this idea of kind of greening your supply chain or your franchise relationships um, I think this is a great opportunity to do it so th- I think there's, there's a lot to play for. That's true of all business and I've actually in a previous episode of Growth Through International Expansion I was talking about exactly the fact that after this other uh, climate emergency will be the, the next big thing right, all over again. Um, it'll come back and that'll be an important thing Um, David, Gordon it's been a great pleasure talking to you this afternoon Um, it's a really really interesting topic Uh, listeners you can find David and Gordon at uh, Field Fisher and there's details of how to get in touch with them on the page that accompanies this podcast on growinternational.org and on all the other accompanying platforms that uh, go with this podcast so once again david gordon thank you very much uh, for talking to me today pleasure thank you thank you i hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation and this podcast i really welcome your comments and also suggestions for future conversations we post new content every week so please do click on the subscribe button and follow this the Growth Through International Expansion podcast. 
You can also find the transcript, other articles and detailed resources relating to this episode on our website, growinternational.org. There, you can also join as a member for future updates and find all our other articles, videos and podcasts and benefit from other features, including free consultations and independent online advice. Again, that's www.growinternational.org. Until next time, this is Oliver Dowson wishing you success and reminding you that international expansion may be easier than you may think. 